1: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague Ed Class on today's show folks. we are talking about behavioral biases. Hey Ed. Hello, Ron. What a week!
2: What a week. What a week what a
1: I'm week. having! Oh, yes, boy. So, tell us about this new experiment that you have running at the moment. <clears throat>
2: yes, we are out on LinkedIn Live for the first time. This gonna, we're going to experiment with this today and see how this goes. So far, so good. We did a test earlier today, and if uh, we get some good reaction to this, we might uh, keep it around for a while. But there's lots of alternatives here, so we'll we'll uh, we'll figure this out once we we get rolling on it. But uh, I think it might be fun to. To interact a little bit more with our our audience on a live basis, bring increase those uh, those show likes from a live perspective and get feedback in real time. So, yeah, happy yeah. happy. So
1: yeah. please, folks, if you have any feedback, if you see this on LinkedIn, let us know, and uh, we'd love to we'd love to hear from you. So Ed, one of our listeners, speaking of feedback, uh, Gear from uh, Norway, right? I, yes, Norway, yes, Norway. Mm-hmm. Yep, sent us this book that he I guess he was taking some course. And they distributed this book called Influences Influences and Irrationalities of the Human Mind by Ogilvy's Behavioral Sciences Practice. Now, this would be Ogilvy in the UK. And, of course, the chairman of Ogilvy in the UK is, or vice chairman, I think, his title officially is, is Rory Sutherland, two-time guest on The Soul of Enterprise. And it's a short little book, uh, and it lists 29 of what they say are the most subtle and powerful nudges. And in the opening, it says, uh, we are combining gravitas of academic understanding with application of real world communications. You know, Roy has been a big believer for a long time that marketing agencies are going to have to become behavioral economists if they want to stay relevant or at least get a better working understanding of human behavior. Than they've had, he said, you know, in the past, we know how advertising's advertising works. Now we have to understand how humans make decisions. So that's been a key thing of him, you know, on our show when he was on and in his book, Alchemy, and all of that. So big believer in, uh, you know, what's it called? Um, what's the... Uh, It's like Darwin psychology, evolutionary uh, evolutionary psychology, psychology. Mm -hmm. Jonathan Haidt and all of those books that he always talks about. Um, And this is kind of an extension of that. So it's a short little book. But, you know, as I was reminded of what Charlie Munger, uh, Warren Buffett's bridge partner said, you know, he said, if economics isn't behavioral, I don't know what the hell is
2: yeah so is is behavioral economics redundant and to a certain extent it is right because economics is that is sometimes defined as the study of of, uh, econ- of human behavior under conditions of scarcity
1: right no so. yep at least that's how the austrians It's all sorts mm-hmm. of really interesting definitions of 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 economics when you when you go through the literature but uh definitely human behavior is, is in there
2: <laughs> oh absolutely it's, human action uh, the way yeah, that, yeah. that as described by uh, mises and, and uh and hayek
1: so mm-hmm. i mean um you know robin crusoe uh, alone on the island doesn't really interact with others so there's no real formal economy there's individual trade-offs he's gonna have to make but he's not interacting with others so there's, mm-hmm. there's no human comp- component there so much yeah, you know,
2: well, we're not going to take all through, to, through 29
1: of these no, run, right? No, you know, no, no, no. way
2: we could, yeah, we could do, it would be too too long to get through that. So what, been, what's
1: your plan to work our way through this? And we've been through uh, some of these on our prior shows, like Mr. Spock and First Homer Simpson and things like that. So we've we've done prior shows on this. But um, just the ones that struck out to me, Ed, were uh, chunking. You know, you're. I know you talk about chunking in terms of project management and giving people, you know, secrete, define tasks to do in in maybe a sequence and they're more likely to do them the example they used was you know when you book a a, an air ticket with Ryanair which is a low cost carrier you know you'll get some ridiculous like one euro you know to Italy but then once you get in there and you start oh if I want to check a bag if I want to carry on a bag if I want to do this if I want to do that and then all of a sudden you're up to 30 or 40 euro and the idea is the more they can get you drawn into the site and plan your trip and be thinking about that trip to Italy, assuming it's a vacation type of thing, you're going to be invested in it and you're less likely to exit. You're going to buy, even though it was 20 times more than, you know, the original price.
2: Uh, see, this is one that I'm skepti- skeptical of that example. I actually do find chunking to be valuable. I've used chunking and I'll, I'll perhaps I'll quick describe it, how I've used it in, in my work, but the the example that was given in this book, I thought was ridiculous because, quite frankly, it sounded to me like being nickled and dimed to death, and I would absolutely not like to buy that way. I just get give me a price and let me move on. But I do see how some people some people like the thrill of the fight. They like they like to play around with those options and see what they can do and how can they keep it under say fifteen euro or can they keep it under thirty euro to, to get this this good deal. But just backing up a second, how I've used chunking is in the example of task delegation. What I have found is that, and this, this works certainly inside the organization. I'm working with somebody inside Sage or uh, what I've also asked some of my audiences to do if they, hey, they have this with, with customers. So if, there's, if they're dependent on customers for, for getting something to them in order to continue the work, to break it down into a two-step process. And sometimes it's as silly as, okay, enter the data into this spreadsheet and rename it and then rename the spreadsheet and send it back to me. Mm-hmm. And when you, what I've found is that when I do that is um, it's more likely that the person will meet whatever deadline I give them than if I don't. Now, is it perfect? No, it's not a panacea. It's not 100% of the time. And, but, but I do find that, I, and I, I have not, you know, set sat here with tick marks and, and kept formal, formal count of this anywhere. So it's purely my anecdotal bias, but it seems to me that it works. So. That, that that's my thought on from from that perspective i don't like this example though
1: sure sure another one i found really interesting is you know the idea of priming we've talked before about in restaurants if they play classical music you'll feel wealthier you'll probably spend more you know per table or whatever um, but there they did this in the wine store and when they played french music french wines outsold german wines five to one and when they played german music they outsold French, German wines, outsold French wines, two to one. Now, I guess what this means is, you know, play both, right? On different days, I don't know, rotate um, <laughs> or get rid of the German wine. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> uh, I don't know what you'd play for Napa. But uh, anyway, I just thought that was kind of interesting. And then another one, of course, is this paradox of choice. And uh, I hadn't seen this example before, but they brought up Prius. When Prius was launched, they had one choice. That was it. And the thinking, I guess, I don't know if this was the thinking of Toyota or this has been, you know, a backstory written afterwards. But um, the, the idea was if, if they would have came out with different choices of Prius, people would have been paralyzed because the decision was hybrid or not, or not a hybrid. Right. Mm. Once you made that decision, then they didn't want you to think, OK, which hybrid? Because that would appear good. Well, then I'll postpone this and wait to see, you know, which which is the best hybrid for me. So they only give you one choice.
2: Yeah, I wonder if they could have could have modified that a little bit, made it the same basic car, but may, maybe added some luxury items to the interior or something like that, that that made made it a, for a better price. So, um, you know, it will I, not not sure w- which which would be better, but uh, I, I see the I see the point of this though of not of having too much choice, especially on something that's a new offering, a new item.
1: Right. Uh, the, the other interesting thing is, you know, a, a lot of criticism of the paradox of choice. In fact, I think Russ Roberts had an author on who wrote a book refuting this paradox of choice. Other, you know, not only can it be replicated, but it's just not true. I mean, look at Starbucks. Right. Mm-hmm. Somebody computed what the number of combinations on a Starbucks menu is. I don't know, it was in hundreds, hundreds of thousands or millions or something. Um, but, it, it, you know, choice isn't always bad. I mean, we walk, just look at the choice you have in a cereal aisle or a wine aisle or even with whiskey or whatever. I mean, it's not it's not true that too much choice paralyzes us.
2: Yes and no. I mean, I think it's it's if, as with anything, context matters. I, I don't know about you. I've in, in a certain steak restaurants when they get the wine list, I'm like, I no idea. But maybe that's because they want you to call the sommelier over. I mean, that's that that could be the strategy there to, to confuse the heck out of you with so many different possibilities and choices. The, the classic example that's given and it's not mentioned in this book is the the jam example, which I believe. And that's what Russ Roberts was talking. That has been refuted right. or, or, or yeah, I should say it more correctly. It's, they've been unable to replicate the results. Right. From that's the right. study that was originally done.
1: But, but more just, on that later, more on that later yep and and just two more here, Ed that I have um the status quo bias you know they they we in polls they say nine out of ten people favor organ donation. when you look at Germany, the organ donation uh is twelve percent in Austria it's ninety nine percent and that's because in Germany you have to opt into it in Austria. you have to opt out, you're already put into it. And so this has been documented, you know, in other countries as well. I think Canada, some other Nordic countries, have an automatic. Don- you're, you're you're an organ donor unless you opt out. Mm-hmm. You know. it's easy to opt out. You can say religion. They don't really care as long as you just go through that hurdle of opting out. Um, and that there does seem to be some type of an effect there, and that's just choice architecture.
2: That is choice architecture. The other example that I remember about this, because there's also in theory there's there's the null value one too. And this was effectively used by, I believe, it was either Radiohead or Nine Inch Nails. I can't remember, but I think it may mm. have been Radiohead when they, they released their first self-published album, so to speak, the the way that you paid for it is you went in and you were given the field, which just simply asked how much are you going to pay? And you could put anything in there you could you put a dollar you could put whatever whatever amount you wanted in that field before you then clicked the, the download but in order to put zero you had to put 0.00 you actually had to type, type it, it three times like i'm a cheapskate I'm not a once cheapskate.
1: i'm a cheapskate not twice a, yeah
2: but three times in other words the, the default value in that case interestingly enough was was null meaning nothing mm. in it at all and it would not let you proceed past that null value so you had to put in something and of course what people were what they were hoping is that people would hit 0.00 now as i i can't remember the the specifics in terms of the actual dollar amounts but i recall the story that was written up about this which i think was in tech, tech dirt. And, and and again this is going back 10 years easy uh, that said that they, they did make more money per album download than they would have made if they had released through a record company. So it was for, for on, on, all in all, it was a win for Radiohead. Now, that said, Radiohead at, at the time was already a, a well-established brand. So it's not like they could have done this and this this was if nobody knew who the heck they were. But I right. um, th- did fi- find that interesting that and there's a lot of, as you know, controversy about this libertarian paternalism and this nudging and what should be the default value. Um, oh, I- I've never understood the fervor over it entirely, but, um, you know, who, but somebody's got to defi- decide what the default value is. Somebody right. has to decide that.
1: No. That's right. And that's the crux of the argument. Um, one more, Ed, I know we got up against a break here, but one more is loss aversion. Yeah. And of course, this is one of the most significant findings. Behavioral economics goes back to Kahneman and Tversky and um, their work. Uh, but you know, we feel two times as, pain, as painful to lose something as to gain the similar amount. So the example they've given in the Ogilvy book is you'll lose X amount per year if you don't insulate your addict. And that's more effective than saying you will save X amount per year if you do insulate your addict. Mm-hmm. Cause again, we feel the loss more intensely than the, than the, uh, the gain. So really interesting. Now, when we come back, folks, we're gonna talk about a recent development from Monday of this week, actually, it dates back a while, but it really blew up for me on Monday, because that's when I first really heard about it. Uh, and it's gonna call into question everything we just told you. So, but <laughs> stay uh, tuned, <laughs> stay tuned. In the meantime, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to ask tsoe at various You can give us a podcast rating, go out to rate this podcast slash TSOE. And also you can check out our Patreon channel at patreon.com slash TSOE. And at a certain tier, you can get a shout out like Geraldine Carter did. And you can check out Geraldine's podcast, Smart Strategy for CPAs. And also you can find more about her at shethinksbigcoaching.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors.
2: Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for us at keyword voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients.
3: for a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com TSOE and subscribe now.
0: We don't follow, we lead. Join us. The Voice America Influencers Channel. We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
2: We are talking behavioral biases here on The Soul of Enterprise. And Ron, this is all well and good, but The Economist on Monday Came out in their daily chart section with a study that said a study on dishonesty was based on fraudulent data. I'm like, oh, no, because this is something that you and I have talked an awful lot about. And in fact, we've gone back what I would say, seven, eight, maybe even 10 years. We've been showing the famous clip of Dan Ariely in The Economist magazine. Maybe yep. this is just payback, Ron. Maybe they're just, they're they're just, they were really ticked off at him for, you know, sort of making fun of them all of these years. And now, surprise, surprise, you know, they're, 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 they're taking their revenge. It but, what, what, yeah, yeah. Now, th- that said, what, what seems to have happened is that a, they, they talk, reading now from the article that, uh, there, uh, a, a, a article has come up from Daniel Horea. Is it Daniel? Yeah. Jason. Uh, Jason, Jason, Jason Horea on the death of behavioral w- economics, calling into question the data that was used in many of these studies. And lo and behold, they they did some analysis on it. And it turns out that it, it does look that it was faked. They were using uh, mileage charts where people would fill in how much mileage they've they've gone. And the whole notion was, is that if you signed this form before you filled it in. And said that it was the truth that you were more likely to be honest on the form than if the if the data came first and then you had to sign it afterwards, saying that the above information is correct. And this brought into account, you know, maybe we should do this with tax returns. Maybe the signature the signature should actually be at the top of the form rather than at the bottom of the form. Um, I guess even on those who prepare the data, would that make a difference? And it it turns out that they now looked at this field experiment. And we know for a fact that on mileage, people are going to round to the nearest zero or even five to a certain extent. You probably should see even ever so slightly see an increase in the number of people that that round to a five. But certainly zeros would be more uh, more uh, in, in order. If you go 132 miles, you're more likely to just write down 132. Or if you go 139 miles, you just round it up to 140. And certainly once you get into the thousands, uh, which is what this study was looking at because I believe this was mileage over the course of a year long period it was. that you're you're more likely the more digits that you're going that that you're going to the left, the more likely you are to round in some way. And they would expect then that it looking at the data, you would find that a almost twenty five percent of them should, in fact, have zeros as the 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 last digit because of this nature of people rounding. Well, what they found in the data that Ariely released was that it was evenly distributed among all of the digits, right around 10 percent, as you would yeah. think. And that, that is now you might recall this, Ron, but this was this was a, this was also used on one of the tests around to prove or disprove election fraud. In mm-hmm. the twenty the twenty twenty election,
1: mm-hmm.
2: where they were saying that that you would be able to tell based on if any of this data was faked, and as I recall, in those stories, that, that most of them came came back and said no, there was there was no evidence that there was anything disparate. Because if right. you're making up numbers, you're going to have this tendency. So I I thought this was really interesting. This is certainly damning. Of course, Ariely says, hey, listen, um, you know, it, I, it wasn't my data. I got it from an insurance company. Uh, he wasn't willing to reveal the name of the insurance company, but somebody else found out that they thought it was the Hartford. Uh, the Hartford says that they have no no record of uh, uh, of this or certainly the data that, that got sent to Dan Ariely, Ariely on this. Uh, they couldn't locate it, but uh, he insists. He Danny really says he, that he is willing to take a lie detector test to say that if, if I did not fabricate the data, that if, if it was, in fact, a problem fra- fraudulent, he was duped. So...
1: Right, I don't um, know. You know, up uh, there's five people that worked on this study. Uh, Dan and four, I guess, of his research assistants or whatever, and they all say they were duped rather than dishonest. I mean, I love what the researchers said. They said we began our collaboration from a place of assumed trust rather than earned trust. Mm-hmm. Wow, there's a behavioral economics <laughs> reply to. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Ever hear a trust but verify? You know, right, uh, right. Uh, But and and ed this is from 2012 and i've used this example many times and we do talk about it in terms of signing the tax return first but supposedly uh the people reported 10 10 and a quarter percent more miles driven who signed the form first as opposed Mm -hmm. to you know turning it over on the back and the other problem not just the the random number generator and the fact that people weren't rounding but the uniform distribution of miles driven just as many drove below 10,000 miles as drove between 40 and 50,000 miles. And no one drove over 50,000. Now, listen, 40,000 miles a year is like you're in trucker territory. Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, I can see 30 for some people would be plus 30. Some people would be plus 25 or whatever. But man, a uniform distribution, you're telling me as many people below the, Drove below ten is uh, drove between forty and fifty. There's no chance, it, yeah. unless your population is truckers and you know grandmas. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just crazy. So yeah, and boy, the Economist really um, r- really did a number on this. And I'm still waiting to see some of the fallout. And i i haven't I haven't spent enough time on researching some of the fallout. I want to see more people's responses. But this article does le- uh, lead you to this, Jason carrera post and and the title is the death of behavioral economics <laughs> it starts out i've got some bad news behavioral economics is dead yeah it's still being taught still being researched but um it's dead and he gives two very specific reasons he says where these experiments have, have are failing to replicate other academics mm-hmm. other researchers <clears throat> cannot replicate this stuff this has been a big problem for a long time in all different academic fields, including medicine, by the way. Um, Russ Roberts has done multiple shows on this. And the second reason he thinks behavioral economics is dead, not dying, but dead. I Mm -hmm. want to emphasize this. This is really, and this is a former collaborator with Dan Ariely. He wrote a workbook with him. Uh, The second reason is interventions are surprisingly weak in practice. In other words, the effects, like we just read from that Ogilvy book, uh, are not as great as they're purported to be, and so he deals with the replication failures, and he goes through some things. and He he wrote the identif- identifiable victim effect, which was a workbook that he wrote with Dan Ariely. Um, but he said, you know, if you look at uh, priming, we talked about priming in in our examples from the book. Um, he said this this you know priming's been featured in Nudge, it's been featured. In in, in Kahneman's book, Thinking, Fast and Slow, um, he said it's not it, it, they can't replicate it. Loss aversion, probably the field's most important idea, has been not been able to be replicated, um, and they're finding the effects of a loss aversion to be very, very uh, minor. Uh, in fact, they think losses and benefits are equally effective in driving conversion rates. Loss aversion, he says, does exist, but only for major losses. I think this is why most of us are worried about a catastrophic health you know, event or earthquake or fire flood type of thing. Um, and he even cites an academic paper that accuses Kahneman and Tversky, his late partner, um, that any data that they discovered that didn't fit was dismissed or distorted uh, when it came to loss aversion. Those are pretty damning indictments of, of the are. work of this field and this guy says if you can't trust their biggest finding that calls into question every other effect that they've detailed and experimented on and studied uh and in fact um the the weak effect of, of some of these nudges uh is the second reason he thinks this field is dead and he said, he cites UC Berkeley researchers looked at 126 random controlled trials by two nudge units here in the United States. And according to the papers, there was an 8.7% effect in, in the nudge, whatever it was. And the actual turned out to be 1.4% and we'll link to this guy's blog post or whatever it is, but he says, basically, you know, what's happened here? He says, well, behavioral economics provides cookie cutter solutions to complicated problems, right? And he said, but specific problems require specific solutions. And lab experiments in in contrived, put put kids in contrived environments. Um, And he thinks he ends by saying, basically, applied behavioral science is where creativity goes to die. And he even says, Dan Ariely is one of the most creative geniuses I know. But there's something about these behavioral models and biases that, that you just kind of look for which one to plug in. And you don't provide any wisdom or judgment behind that. And this is one of the biggest damning criticisms that others have made of some of this uh, work in this field.
2: Yeah, and two two quick things on this because I know we're coming up against our break. Well, let me just just talk about the one you you and I when we we did a pricing class for the Professional Pricing Society, and I think a couple of other times we did use a nudge exercise to 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 see this. Where what we had is three different products on the sheet. We asked people to write down. Uh, the last two digits. of their Well, I don't know if it was social security number. I think it was, it was phone number or something phone, yeah. instead, because we were trying to we're trying to 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 get away from any identifiable. Yeah. yeah, they, yeah. So we had them write write down those the, the the two digits, and then they had to price these three products based based on just a picture of them. And I would we would do that as one of our the first opening exercises. I would collect the data, and then we would present it back later when we were getting to to some of these things. Uh, to to get into some of these behavioral uh, economic um, ideas, and there was a correlation. I mean, I I, I entered the data in, I'm, I mean, unless I faked it myself, I don't know what, what, <laughs> po- po- possible I would fudge in the data. But what I what I can say is there was a, there was a correlation. It wasn't that big though. I I will readily admit that as I as I drew the yeah. the, the the line that that showed the correlation, it was there. But it wasn't. It wasn't big at all. It wasn't substantial. Uh, so, I guess this sort of plays it out. And we did it multiple times with. Uh, I would say it wasn't hundreds of people, but it was several dozen.
1: Sure. The other thing, Ed, that just calls into question is that famous example of the Economist. You know, the three different options for one-year subscription. A forty-two percent increase. Um, that can't be right. It just can't be right.
2: Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that when we get back, though. I want to remind folks that they can get a hold of us at asktsoe at varisage.com. Of course, the website is the soul of enterprise, where we post show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Also, now there's some categories out there so that you can click on those to see the shows that we've done around particular categories. If you've got some examples of other categories that you'd like us to do, please do let us know about that. And you can either do that by sending that email. Or get hold of us on Twitter at, at Ask TSOE. Right now, though, a word from our sponsor.
0: Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency Podcast on TuneIn.
2: Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients.
3: Commercials Plus bonus content go to patreon.com TSOE subscribe now and be free you're worth it
0: This is the voice america influencers channel be inspired we're tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise
2: we are back talking about behavioral biases here on the Soul of Enterprise, and I forgot to do a shout out to our Patreon sponsor, 90 Minds, who do sponsor our Patreon channel. So if you need a mind, somebody who's interested in Sage 100 and implementing there, get one at 90minds.com. Ron, I, I just want to, to jump back a little bit to, to some of these examples because I'm having a hard time parse out parsing out what is actual behavioral economics and what... And what's just basic human behaviors when we see certain things like that? Because I, I think I don't think that we can dismiss the entire baby with the bat, proverbial baby with the bathwater. There's clearly something to the 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 idea of uh, nudging from a from a default value standpoint. Otherwise, we wouldn't have those those field tested results of Germany versus Austria and organ donors that the debate around that to me is should there be a default value and if so why which which one should be selected but it's clear that not that defaulting one way or the other has a significant impact on it so it, yeah, i don't think right. there's a doubt right of that
1: yeah no i i this you know humans are complicated uh and we're not you know we're not billiard balls right you can you can track the motion of billiard balls or predict it but you can't tell whether or not your car is going to drive to kmart or walmart you know mm-hmm. if, if there's road construction or something and you intended to go to target and now you have to go to kmart or whatever i mean humans are just really really there here's one of the biggest criticisms and this will resonate with our audience and it will resonate with you ed in both um, rational economics, you know, the Mister Spock side and the behavioral economics, in the models, and they are models—all mm-hmm. these biases and all that—they're theories and models. There's absolutely no room for surprise, none. Right. <laughs> and human, and I think this is why George Gilder's comment about this. When we asked him specifically, "What do you think about?" Behavioral economics. He says, I think it's trivial. I think this is what he was getting at, because there's no room for that, that information, you know, that information theory of surprise. And that's that's big. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, Deirdre McClowski has written a, a recent book called Bettering Humanomics. And she says, if you if you look at other recent neo-behavioral behaviorist fashions, such as neuroeconomics, right, studying MRI of your brain, lights up, whatever, Mm -hmm. behavioral finance and happiness studies. She goes, all of these are dubious. Or they treat creative adults like a flock of little children. She said, we need, they say, all these behavioralists merely to observe their behavior, omitting for some reason linguistic behavior. And this is another problem, you know, this, uh, uh, th- and this was my favorite book of 2019. It was my number one book. It's episode number 275. I don't know how far I got into this book when I did my short recap on that show, but it's called Sense and Sensibility, What Economics Can, can Learn from the Humanities by Gary Saul Morrison and Morton Shapiro. And they say, what's the difference between humanities and economics? Stories. And this is the book that tried to make the case that great novelists who the authors write understand people better than any social scientist who has ever lived. Dostoyevsky, Tolstoy, Mm -hmm. Dickens, right? Uh, And one of their lines is, surely no one in his right mind ever thought people are rational to begin with. Why the whole heritage of Western literature has described people as irrational, and the social sciences point to many factors other than reason that shape behavior. Why would philosophers, since Socrates, have been urging people to act rationally if they always did so anyway? And they just it. go, they just go on and on about, um, you know, you can't understand human beings without understanding stories. And you can't, you can't grasp most of what people do by deductive logic. We need stories. And that's their, that's their criticism of these models of behavioral economics. They say novels are a distinct way of knowing. Ethics itself requires judgment, cannot be reduced to theories, models, or sets of rules. Economics can't deal with culture, right, because we can't fit it into our math. And same with wisdom. And yet all these things have a big impact on human behavior Behavioral economics can account for them any better than can rational economics, neoclassical economics.
2: Yeah, we used to have a saying when we would wrap this up because we would talk both about the neoclassical economics and the behavioral stuff that, you know, neoclassical economics explains about 50 percent of the behavior and and behavioral economics explains the other half and i and i think what we're coming to the conclusion is that it's actually only about they only each explain about 25 percent. we're still clueless the other 50 percent of the time there's, so there's,
1: there's, there's gonna... that hidden there's that hidden half some some one of the british journalists wrote a book called the hidden half and it's fantastic that kind of talks about you know is it culture is it is it nature or nurture right and mm-hmm. it's like it's 50 50 or some combination thereof And it's like no no there's it, both culture, uh, both nature and nurture are probably only fifty percent. There's another hidden app that we haven't even thought of or discovered yet.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, some really interesting stuff uh, on that.
1: The the other thing, Ed, that's really interesting about this book, Sense and Sensibility, is is they say so many insights that you read from like an Ariely book or or Thaler or Kahneman, and they mention all these people uh, along with Deirdre. Um, and they praise her work tremendously because of the linguistic storytelling rhetoric side. Um, but they say so many of these insights that we read, we sit there and say to ourselves, being humanists, these guys have humanities, you know, degrees. They say, you mean you had to do a study to prove that? Like, and that's what that was my reaction when I first saw Dan Ariely live up at the University of Reno, he was talking about religion and and why are Catholics more honest You know, now he tied it to confession and the fudge factor and all of that. But it's like, really, you needed a study to realize that religious people were more honest? (laughs) Um, Okay. Uh, And it's it's a good point. And and they bring up a couple of other things. And this even kind of slams um, something we've talked about in the past. But, you know, let's say a man sees a cashmere sweater in the store and he, he looks at the price tag and says, oh, it's too expensive. But then his wife buys it for him for Christmas. Now they pull their resources, right? So it doesn't matter. He wouldn't have bought it anyway, but he's thrilled when he opens it up and even though he's, you know, paying for it. And Richard Thaler says, Is this irrational? He says, Yes, because it's coming out of the same pot. If you didn't want it when you saw it, you shouldn't have wanted it anymore at Christmas. And these guys, right, as humanists, we understand the difference a gift makes. <laughs> I forget. Now, we talked about the Christmas show, you know, the de- the deadweight loss of gift giving. And that's yeah, all right. funny and hysterical. But then why do so many of us continue to give gifts? It just can't be because we're a bunch of irrational idiots. There must be something else about human nature.
2: Well, and I think, and I think we we talked about that. First of all, the the that, that study, who knows if this is repl- replicable, by the way, uh, was that spouses were the only ones that 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 valued whatever they were given at 102% of the actual price that was paid so there that was the the one place where it 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 was uh it did make sense to buy a gift but then again it's not it's not the monetary value of the gift it's we 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 I think we mentioned this on the show it is literally it's the thought that counts the fact that your spouse cares enough about you to buy something that you wouldn't buy for yourself even though you've pulled your resources together even though the money is shared it was extraordinarily nice of her and thoughtful to go out and get it for you, regardless right. of the
1: price. They also bring up the or- the market for organs. And mm-hmm. yes, from an economic rationality perspective, we can all make the case. But there's, there's enormous arguments on the other side. We're not there yet. We haven't won that argument. And uh, there's good reasons for it. And they can't be modeled by either side. Of the economics debate right both sides would lead you to to have a market for organs but there's a reason why we don't um and and the other thing is you know they they claim that uh behavioral economics purports to be adding the human dimension to economic models but it does nothing of the kind the, the human beings it imagines behave just as mechanically only less efficiently So, it's really important to remember that behavioral economics has got its own models, its own, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, orthodoxies. Um, And since it leaves out storytelling, I mean, this was Deirdre's big, big claim when she started writing, you know, rhetoric and economics and and all of that, that economists are not good storytellers. Mm -hmm. And storytelling is what separates us from (laughs) animals,
2: yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I agree. And there, there is there's se- several times when I've looked at some of this behavioral stuff and it was just like, well, that that to me doesn't sound like it's first of all, even worthy of study because. It, but how is it even economic? So what was the uh, Oh, the the example in the book is that partitioning, which is basically just that that even experienced bartenders will tend to pr- t- tend to pour 25 percent more alcohol if the, the glasses are sh- are shorter and wider. How right. is that a behavioral economics problem? That's a, that's a sp- spatial geometry issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. right? Yeah, it's just, yeah. <laughs> that's not irrational that, that somebody would pour more into a shorter, wider glass. It's just like, how hard is it to imagine this, the, 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 the surf not only the surface area, but the area of, a, of, a, of, a, of the volume of a liquid? It's difficult for us right. to even process that.
1: Yeah. You know, John Kay, who wrote a great book called Obliquity, uh, says, if people are predictably irrational, and you know where he got that, (laughs) one Mm -hmm. of Dan's books, uh, he said, perhaps they are not irrational at all. Perhaps the fault lies not with the world, but with our concept of rationality. In other sure. words, if we're so irrational, Ed, if we're predictably irrational and all of that, and the upside of irrational and all these things, we have 237 biases out there or whatever the number is. <laughs> um, if we're this dumb, how, how do we even know it? How have we been able yeah. to document all this, all these biases?
2: That's right, right in right in line with Jules Goddard and his his line about strategy, which was you know it was it wasn't the strategy that was bad, as the morons who couldn't execute the strategy, and the morons come back and say, well, don't you think you should have taken the fact that we were morons into, into account and yeah, put the strategy
1: yeah. in place? But, <laughs> that was Henry. That was Henry Mintzberg, by the way. But oh, it was taken, Mintzberg okay? That yeah, was Mintzberg. Um, but but that's a great point. Well, you guys should have known we were idiots, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, but yeah, yeah, these are, you know, these are some of the things and I, it is kind of interesting to see how well or how quickly behavioral economics kind of diffused into the profession and just, you know, just among the general populace as well.
2: Yeah, no, interesting stuff. All right, Ron, we're up against our last break. Remind those of you out there, you can contact us by sending that email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Already talked about the Patreon channel, already talked about our Rate This podcast. So what I'll leave you with is listen to the word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage.
0: Follow us on Twitter at Voice TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN.
3: Hearing me plug Ronan Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the diamond water paradox. Go to Patreon.com/tsoe and subscribe today, please. For the love of
0: God, make it stop. we're tuned into the soul of enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed class to find out more about our show, visit us on the web at the soul of You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag ask TSOE. Now back to the soul of enterprise.
1: Well, welcome back, everybody. We're talking about behavioral biases and Ed, you know, the Austrian economists who were probably the first behavioral economists in, in all honesty, um, Mises developed this thing called praxeology, which this, which was the science that was preoccupied with the psychology and understanding human decision-making. And he thought that economics was the study of human praxeology under conditions of scarcity, Mm -hmm. you know, like you said at the opening. And he, 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 he wrote his book called human action because he believed that, that animals behaved, but humans acted and each of us acts purposefully. With a goal in mind it can be fixed or we can change it frequently but each of us also learns and therefore action is purposeful it, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, we're just not behaving and and he did say this in human action he said air inefficiency and failure must not be confused with irrationality he who shoots wants as a role to hit the mark if he misses it he is not irrational he's a poor marksman mm. So just this idea of you know, well that's just irrational um, I've always been uncomfortable with that because calling people irrational is not a good way to persuade anybody no.
2: No, but it's, it was also intended to provoke, too, then the whole predictably sure. irrational concept. But so here's my question, Ron. We, we, we have talked about a lot of this stuff, anchoring. We, talked, we, we have used that, that uh, Economist magazine ones in the, the courses that we use. A lot of the, the examples from Rory Sutherland that we've incorporated are at least attributed in some way to behavioral economics. But I come back to the question I think I talked about earlier: is is this really behavioral economics, or are these just other things that observations about human behavior that just exist, and somebody just kind of bundled them all up and and slapped this label "behavioral economics" on it? Because I, I really do think that things like choice architecture, putting choices before a customer, is far better than giving them a range of between Absolutely. this and this. Uh, so, so I'm just curious, do you, do you think that, that we, we dismiss all of this or that's just behavioral economics and we, 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 we can't uh, incorporate that into the, the conversation anymore?
1: No, I think we try and maybe get out of this whole debate of are we, are we Spock or Homer Simpson? You know, Mm. I think it's a false construct. If you think about how, and if you go back and read one of Thaler's books about how he developed, you know, a chalkboard or whiteboard in his office, and he would write down these interesting questions that, you know, neoclassical economics couldn't answer about rationality, like, why do we leave tips, you know, stuff like that. Mm. Um, And it, it seems to me like behavioral economics grew out of attacking the rational economists you know, the theory of, of rationality, which was just a, uh, an assumption, it was never a, a model. I mean, even Friedman, Landsberg, Levitt, all of, the, all of the people on the rational side said, look, this is an assumption. We're not saying there's a human like this. We're mm-hmm. saying this is an assumption that helps us understand how the world works and does also lead to its own pretty good conclusions like why is movie theater popcorn so expensive? Why is there 99 cent pricing? We didn't get those answers from behavioral economics. We got those answers from the rationalists and the presumption of rationality. So I, I think both have insights and maybe economics just needs to return to economics and, and or what Deirdre says, humanomics. And let's bring, bring in some storytelling and, and all that because I agree with you. I don't want to give up options. I don't want to give up your anchor price. Uh, I don't want to give up some of your chunking strategies that seem to be working. Um, there, there's probably other things that we thought about it. Nudging? No, no, we talked about the, 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 Some choice architecture, you know, yeah. the, what's the default? I mean, the 401 case studies I have seen, and there mm-hmm. is a big impact there. Now, it was not as big as the two thirds or three fourths that I read in some popular media accounts. It was more like maybe a fourth to 30% or something like that, but it did nudge people more into a 401k and they saved more as well out of future raises.
2: Yes. And th- there was one in the the book about that, right? Where, it, where they, 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 I forget what the the effect was, but it's, they, they said instead, instead of giving, telling people the wonders about their retirement account, and how much money they're go- going to save? Tell them that if they join, they'll, they'll be entered into a, a raffle for a ten thousand dollar or hundred thousand dollar prize, and that created far more incentive for people. This because it was a more immediate gain than something in the future. And like I, to me, is that a behavioral economics thing, or is that rational to say, oh, I for this small thing that I do today, I could have a huge potential potential payout for a short term gain. And is it just short-term versus long-term thinking that's been part of us since we emerged from the
1: Savannah? Right, right. Yeah, I think we all uh, people have different time preferences. Right. That's why more yeah you know, some people are more tolerant of risk than others. Some people are happy to be employees. Other people need to be serial entrepreneurs and be constantly out there on the ledge. Um, you know that that's what makes human humanness great. It can't be modeled.
2: Yeah. And then which brings us to even some current events, too, which maybe we'll talk, pick this up on our bonus episode available on our Patreon channel is, you know, what what's the impact of behavioral economics potentially on trying to get more people vaccinated? Uh, because we've seen some strategies employed there too, with, with, first of all, just outright payments for, for certain people. Hey, you know, companies have done this. I think even the state of Ohio did, did this, or no, yeah, Ohio or, did or the lottery, lottery, lottery the yeah. lottery system where they would have, I don't know, $5 million winners or, or something for people who who, uh, who got got jabbed. So they've employed some of these concepts on that. And, you know, I, I'm curious as to your thoughts on, on the, those implications as well.
1: Well, you talked about Delta was it last week or the week before Greg brought it up about the $200 to your health insurance. <laughs> if you if you yeah. don't get vaccinated, they're going to start charging. So that's more of the stick approach. Yep. And then, of course, there's carrot approaches. Uh, apparently, the Biden administration is going to uh, force companies with over, what is it, a thousand employees.
2: Uh, I, thought about I read
1: 100. 100. Oh, so, oh, oh, it could be 100. I, I just might have misremembered that. But, yeah, it's going to be mandatory that you get vaccinated or you're going to have weekly uh, uh, COVID tests. Mm-hmm. If you don't, um, I think that's a real interesting legal question. If you can do that, it is a question, but I'm either. not, I'm not so but, much yeah, interested yeah, in the I'm politics of yeah. it as
2: I am from, from the, the behavioral standpoint is, are there, there are strategies that potentially could be employed here and, and the impact just on pricing and subscription based pricing too, because I, 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 I we, you know, we see things happen all the time and we even comment on it. Like, uh, Putting the, the the most expensive option in the middle, as opposed to left to right or top to bottom, um, right. and and I, and I've always felt a little bit uncomfortable about some of the behavioral stuff too. Is like how much of it is manipulation? How much of it yeah. is it, it, it is intentional sleight of hand, intentional manipulation? Knowing what we know about people in this way, but I guess if it's I guess if some of these things are false, then it can't be manipulative now, can it?
1: Well, well, you know, that's one of the biggest uh, criticisms from uh, Mark D. White, who wrote The Manipulation of Choice, Ethics and Libertarian Paternalism. He's a Mm -hmm. big critic of the choice architecture and the defaults and all of that. Um, So, yeah, we're just going to have to keep our eye on the set. I think there's going to be a lot more on this. We're going to see is to see some academics come out and really start attacking some of these ideas. And let's see how the behavioralists like Baylor and Kahneman respond. Yeah. And Rory. I'm say. very be, be and, curious
2: as yeah. to what Rory would have to say. So.
1: me too. And I'll just end. Let, let, let me just quote this from Dostoyevsky because I, I love this. He said, if someone would someday truly discover a formula for all our desires and caprices, there would be no caprices at all there will be no more incidents and adventures in the world.
2: Look to literature for
1: wisdom. Yep. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Maybe let's just stop trying to predict human behavior. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Ron, what are we going to get next week? Next week, Ed, we're going to talk about the, uh, we're going to have a subscription economy update. I don't know how long it's been since we've done a subscription show, but that's what we'll be doing.
2: All right. We'll look forward to seeing you 167 hours.
1: This has been the Soul of Enterprise Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com for more information on the show and for upcoming shows, uh, and including additional resources and things that we talked about today. Also, you can contact Ed or me at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.